Welcome to the American Railroading Podcast, brought to you by the Revolution Rail Group, live from the great state of Texas. We'll discuss a wide range of topics related to the railroad industry, from regulatory items and the challenges our industry faces, to passenger rail excursions, and recognizing U.S. Armed Forces veterans in our industry. Join us as we educate, entertain, and explore the world of American railroading. Here's your host, industry veteran, Don Walsh. Well, hey, welcome everybody to the American Railroading Podcast. I am your host, Don Walsh, President and CEO of the Revolution Rail Group, the anchor sponsor for the American Railroading Podcast. We are a consulting and brokering firm in the rail car industry. So if you're needing assistance with merger and acquisition consulting, process flow analysis, um, anything like that, we can help you. We can also help you with brokering services. So if you're looking to buy, sell, lease, or sublease rail cars, whether it's box cars, hopper cars, tank cars, what have you, we can assist you with that as well. You can reach out to us today at 844 844- Four five five three four three four. You can also email us at info at therevolutionrailgroup.com. And you can also check out our full suite of services on our website at therevolutionrailgroup.com. Well, folks, Christmas is here, and I'm so excited to be able to spend time with family and friends this week, as I'm sure all of you are. And also looking forward to volunteering at church, as Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, but one thing I'm not looking forward to, and I had a laugh about this on the way to the studio today, is some of the traditional foods. I'm sure there's foods that y'all don't care for at Christmas time. There's one in particular that I've never really understood, and that's green bean casserole. I mean, I love green beans, and I love cream of mushroom soup. I've never understood why they put them together. Kind of like snot in a bowl. <laughs> so, producer John, is there anything like that that you just don't have a care for at the holiday season? Well, first, I got to respond to why we would put those things together, Don, and that is because they are delicious. <laughs> I, I do not agree with you on the green bean casserole there. But the one I do uh, think that we should get rid of the fruit, what's it called? It's like a fruit salad that's kind of jelly, mm. but kind of pudding. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like pink. Yeah. That thing, I, I don't like that one. We could get rid of that one. Uh, ambrosia, that's oh, what it's called. Yeah. We can get rid of that. Never had it, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump on board with you on that. All right. We'll awesome. eliminate it altogether. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I just wanted to share that with, with folks out there. I'm sure you all have something that you can do without. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wishing you all a Merry Christmas with family and friends and enjoy your time as you listen to this episode this week as you're traveling, which I know, I know you're going to do. So thank you all again for your continued support of the podcast. We remain incredibly in the top 10% in the world for all podcasts, which puts us ahead of like 2.7 million other podcasts globally. And uh, we've been downloaded now in 26 different countries and on 34 different podcast platforms, which I didn't know there were 34 different podcast platforms. So it's simply amazing. So please continue to download, to share, and to leave us reviews. So the way reviews help us is that pushes us further, further out into the interwebs. The algorithms pick those kinds of things up, and it pushes us out for more people to listen to and to watch and enjoy. So please continue to leave us reviews. And if you like what you've heard on our episodes, you can also buy us a cup of coffee. So you can go to our website at AmericanRailroading.net. You'll see us a, a little yellow cup of coffee on the bottom left-hand corner. You can click on that, and you can buy us one cup, three cups, five cups, or ten cups of coffee. And it's like leaving us a tip if you think we've done a good job. So thank you for those that have done it and those that were thinking about it. We really appreciate that. It goes a long way in helping us with our endeavors here on the podcast. Podcast. Also, don't forget that we have a YouTube channel. So if you like to watch the videos versus listening to our episodes, you can do that. You can either do it on our website, again, at AmericanRailroading.net, or you can go to YouTube at American Railroading Podcast and be able to watch our videos there. 
Regarding our online store, folks, it's looking great. I'm really enjoying working with it, getting it all set up. We're still in the process of beta testing, but the products look great. The site looks great, and we're really, really close. I know I was hoping to get it up and live for you by Black Friday, and I apologize we weren't able to do that, um, but we will have it up and running soon. So trust me, we're, we're disappointed it's not up and running yet, but we want it to be perfect for you so that you're not going to have any issues once you get in there, and it's going to be a good experience for you, and you're going to want to continue to come back. So please continue to follow me on LinkedIn and you'll see when it goes live. And as soon as it's live, we will announce it there on LinkedIn. Also here at the holidays, I know I've mentioned it before, but please remember our troops that are away from home during the holidays uh, for this Christmas and for New Year's as well. If you still have time to send a care package, if you'd like to, through our friends at Boots for Troops, if you have a friend or family member that's deployed, and you can do that at boots, the number four troops.org. Again, boots for troops. Dot org, And you can either adopt uh, a, a, someone that's who's serving overseas, uh, you can uh, buy a care package for one of your friends or family members, or you can simply donate toward a care package if you can't afford to do an entire care package of your own. Also, if you're a veteran facing challenges with PTSD during the holiday season, we have our friends here at Camp Hope in the Houston area that you can speak with 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Please feel free to reach out to them at their emergency line, which is 877 7873. We're currently accepting podcast sponsorship for 2024. That's something new we're going to do in 2024. So we have a variety of sponsorship options for you. So please feel free to reach out to us. Spaces are limited. Uh, we have about three weeks remaining to take uh, new sponsorships on. So if you'd like to be a part of season two, it's hard to believe we're talking about season two already. Season one is coming to a close. But if you'd like to be a part of our sponsorship program, you can reach out to us at marketing at AmericanRailroading.net. Again, that's marketing at AmericanRailroading.net. And having said that, I really can't believe season one is coming to a close. It's been amazing. Uh, this podcast was two years in the making uh, for the planning and, and everything. And to launch it this year has been a total blessing. And our guests have been amazing uh, all throughout the year. And we've got nothing but positive responses from you, our audience, which reflects in the top 10% rating, right? So thank you to all of our guests throughout this year in season one. And we're Really, really looking forward to season two uh, launching in January. And having said that, as we bring our season to a close, our guest today, today for our season one final episode, which is a 2023 year in review, uh, is an appropriate choice in my opinion. He's one of my favorite speakers at industry conferences and is known for being the closing speaker and bringing the house down, as they say, which he literally does. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he delivers rapid-fire information and with well-timed punchlines along the way, uh, as he has an amazing sense of humor as well. And our guest for today is Tony Hatch. And Tony is the founder and president of ABH Consulting based in New York City. Tony's a graduate of Harvard University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in history and has been a senior transportation analyst at Wall Street for over 20 years. Tony started his analyst career at Solomon Brothers, then proceeding to Argus, Payne Weber, and NatWest Markets, USA, prior to starting his independent analyst consultancy in 1999 and working with CV Brokerage. With over a quarter century's experience in the field, Tony has been active as an independent analyst and consultant doing work for major railroads such as Norfolk Southern, CSX, Union Pacific, BNSF, Kansas City Southern, I take a breath, <sighs> there's so many, uh, Canadian National as well as Association of American Railroads, the American Short Line and Regional Railroad Association, just to name a few. 
Tony is a regular speaker, as I said, at industry conferences such as NARS, NEARS, Sears, Swars, and Mars, where I see him all the time. And he is also co-founder of Rail Trends Conference, along with Progressive Railroading Magazine, which takes place every fall in New York City, where he is also a co-presenter. Tony has received various honors and awards throughout his career, with his career highlights being his testifying before Congress on railroads starting back in 1998. Tony lives in New York City and enjoys baseball, specifically the L.A. Dodgers. He also enjoys English soccer, which is the Tottenham Spurs, along with U.S. history, politics, and sports cars, which is one of my loves as well. And with that, Tony, I say welcome to the American Railroading Podcast. Thank you, Don. I'm glad to be here. It's been well over 20 years by now, though. I need to update that. You can see it's been over 20 years on my own plus another bunch of years before that working on Wall Street. And uh, my first question to you is, how does it feel having Shohei Otani on the Dodgers? <laughs> it feels great. Uh, I, I just took my Dodger jacket off for this. I've been sleeping in it for the last five days or so. Um, it feels great. We've also picked up a great pitcher from uh, Tampa, and we have more money to spend. But also, it's not my money. So it's a lot of money, but it's not mine. So uh, that makes it particularly good. And the fact that he's deferred so much of it, allowing the team to go out and, and get other players. Uh, the Dodgers are not typically a huge free agent buyer like the Mets were, right? They they often supplement with with guys. Remember, they traded for um, uh, uh, Mookie Betts, who I think is their best player as of last week. Uh, anyway, we could talk. We could be on a baseball podcast some other time. But I'm extremely excited about that. Uh, I never, I can all, always get about this time, can you start uh, counting the days to pitchers and catchers? But now, even more so, it's going to be uh, a circus, but a good one. Yeah. And I knew you'd be excited about that. So <laughs> I wanted to make sure to ask. And I also want to, yeah, absolutely. And I also want to ask with a degree in history, how did you end up in a career in transportation analytics? Well, um, I went through the Solomon Brothers training program for, for any of you listeners who, who read the really great book by Michael Lewis, hilarious book called Liar's Poker. Uh, I was, that, that was about Solomon and the training, the first training program. I was in the second right afterwards. Uh, if I'd waited a few years and read the book, I would have realized how uncool uh, Solomon Brothers thought analysts were, but I thought I was very cool. And I basically wanted to be a research analyst. I thought it was a great way of taking uh, my history skills and my ability to write and whatnot and to condense complicated thoughts into, you know, bite-sized chunks uh, and then translate that into, in, you know, bring that into the financial field. And I thought that being an analyst was what I really wanted to do. I spent a fair amount of time sort of thinking about jobs. I, I lived in New York and I came back to, to New York. I worked at uh, big consulting for McKinsey. And when everybody else went off to business school, I went to a training program. How I got to railroads was sort of there was an opportunity in railroads. And I like to joke that, they, you know, there were sort of two or three places you could go and apprentice. Right. And uh, meaning you work for a senior analyst as a junior. And one of them was something called wireless, which I thought, well, that's not going to go anywhere. Who's ever going to use phones that aren't connected to the wall? So it shows you how little I knew about that. I might have been having this podcast from an island that I owned, uh, but I liked railroads because of history. So that's a big part of it. Right. I also what I liked about them is you have to know a little bit about just about every facet of the economy. You know, they move grain to at the time we didn't really know think about it back then but you know retail goods and containers but automotive steel chemicals coal there was always something you know something going on rather than being you know so you had to, it allowed me to be the sort of jack of all trades which is sort of what how i view this sort of skill set once i got in i was hooked so it was a little bit random to get there 
you know, and, and different opportunities had, had shown up beforehand. I might have been on a different kind of podcast now. Yeah. Well, well thank God you're here. <laughs> <laughs> and turning to some more recent news in the industry itself, just a few weeks ago, uh, the chairman of the Surface Transportation Board, or STB, Marty Oberman, announced that he will not be seeking renomination uh, when his initial five-year term expires on December 31st of this year, 2023, and therefore will depart the agency in 2024. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are and what does this mean for the agency? And do you have any thoughts of who might be the appointee once he steps down? Well, um, so he actually announced that at my Railtrans conference uh, two and a half weeks ago, uh, and I was quite shocked. Uh, I assume that, you know, he seemed like he really liked what he was doing. You know, he's, uh, his years belie his, his appearance and his, you know, you know he, he's very youthful despite the fact that his, his you know, uh, a driver's license has a high number. Um, and, you know, we disagreed on a whole lot of stuff, but I really enjoyed him. Um, I just saw him uh, Friday for lunch in Chicago uh, at what we call the Sandhouse Gang annual Christmas lunch. We both spoke at there and, and, and ate lunch together. Uh, I will miss him on a personal level. Um, his stories of just about being an alderman in Chicago and whatnot are, are fantastic. Uh, and one thing I do appreciate, whether I agree on, on the level of what of what the common carrier obligation should be about and, and whether government can be solutions to some of these issues, um, I think overall he's very considered. I think the reciprocal switching proposal uh, that that he steered through, you know, unanimously, um, you know, actually is a really so uh, win-win-win situation. Uh, and what I mostly liked about him is he told you what he was thinking. Uh, there have been some very smart people who were chairman of the STB in my tenure here. You know, I go back to when it was still the ICC, but but when the SC, there have been some very smart people there. But they tended to uh, act like lawyers. That is, if they spoke at Railtrans, for example, that was a great time to go get coffee uh, because you, they were going to say, I can't talk about it. here's here's the big rate case. And it's between this carrier and this, um, you know, and, and this uh, chemical company, let's say, or or utility company. But I can't really talk about it. So they you would take no notes. Uh, you you didn't miss Marty when he spoke. And hopefully we'll get another you know good chunk of next year because he'll tell you what he's thinking. And if he says. I'm getting angry about using embargoes as a way to meter traffic. You should pay attention. Um, most of the railroads, not all, do pay attention. Uh, I think also he correctly shepherded through the, what will be the last great merger. So, you know, he will go down as a, you know, a, a, a giant in his field. And while, again, while I disagree with our basic premise, you know, uh, we may both come from the same political party, but I still you know, believe markets solve things better than, than governments. And if you, look at the reaction to the East policy and some of the safety proposals that had nothing to do with the accident is a way of saying, you know, you know, we, we need to, to make sure that, that that all sides are heard from. So we have some fundamental disagreements, but I'll miss them. Uh, I have no idea who's going to take over. I mean, there are two Democrats there. If that's going to be done, I don't know whether we wait till the election. He says we don't have to, to see whether the next chairman will be Republican or Democrat. It is interesting. I've never viewed the regulation is often thought of as a partisan issue. You know, stereotypically, Democrats are for it, Republicans are against it. If you look at railroad regulation, it's a completely different breed of cat. I mean, a, a rate dispute between Union Pacific and Dow Chemical, you know, where's the liberal or conservative position on what's essentially a rate story between big businesses, right? So therefore, I never really thought for this case it mattered about the White House and the party name. 
Um, you know, I, I, and I think historically that's been the case. Uh, there are you know, some one, you know, if if the ranking Democrat in the STB were, were, would be there, he is thought to be extremely close to labor, which, by the way, is not really an STB issue, except as it pertains to service. And so there therefore may be a partisan issue that may arise out of this. Uh, historically, you know, I just wanted them to be smart uh, and thorough. Uh, and not capricious, and I didn't really care whether they were followed by a D or an R. Absolutely. And I agree with you on Marty Oberman as well. Uh, growing up in Chicago, I was familiar with him, and I have a little bit of a funny story. So at the Midwest Association of Rail Shippers Conference last January, um, I had set up my booth, and I was running a little bit late to getting to breakfast. So by the time I got to breakfast, everyone had already gone into the conference for opening remarks. And so if you can imagine, the room is completely empty, except um, Marty Oberman is sitting all by himself at a table. And I honestly had some questions for him about high-speed rail possibilities here from Houston to Dallas and that I knew they were looking at. So I unabashedly walked up and sat next to him. I said, do, do you mind if I sit here? And he looks around the room at all the empty tables where I could have sat and said, yeah. uh, I guess not. And so I, I reintroduced myself. We had met before and slid over my business card. And he goes, well, I'm guessing you know who I am. I said, yeah. yes, sir, I do. <laughs> Um, but he was very gracious with his time and, and listened to my questions and gave me straight answers. And I agree with you. That's one of the things I really have enjoyed about him is whatever he was thinking came out of his mouth. And I've always appreciated that about him. And for our listeners and viewers who aren't familiar with the STB, uh, just to give them a little bit of heads up, the STB is an independent federal agency that serves as an adjudicatory board founded in 1996, uh, which has regulatory powers pertinent to the rail, railroad industry. And as an example, and you mentioned it earlier, is railroad mergers. So one such merger that you touched on moments ago is, was the merger of two Class 1 railroads this year, the Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern, complete on April 14th of this year in 2023, now known as the CPKC which I believe is the first railroad to now be in history to have provided service from Canada to Mexico. I could be wrong on that, but I believe that's the case. So can you take a moment just to give us your opinion on the merger and what, if any changes you've seen take place since and what you anticipate that looking like moving forward? The STB is really at its most powerful when they're looking at a merger. Uh, the way the rules uh, are now interpreted, this will be the last merger. So in many ways, we're at peak STB, if you will. Um, they regulate uh, certain uh, commodities, but not all. They, those include coal, grain, and chemicals, very important to the rail business, but not in a modal, for example, which is you know growing you know the biggest piece. And and they also don't regulate anything that's taken into a contract. So you know what they actually have control over is small, though they could do things like hold hearings, which could lead to you know can embarrass railroads, and they they could use their bully pulpit pulpit and. Uh, um, you know, Marty's been the master of that. Uh, in terms of the mergers, though, they have complete control. They allow this merger. Future mergers, this merger was done under rules that said you can't basically eliminate any current levels of competitive access, right? You can't remove competition. Future mergers will have to say you are not only not removing, you're enhancing existing competition. And it's such a nebulous thing. I, I really doubt in our lifetimes we'll see anything further. Uh, this one was clearly going to be approved. There were all sorts of, you know, rumors at the last minute. You know, it's it, remember they don't regulate safety, so the whole issue of East Palestine and whatnot is 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 done by a DOT unit called the Federal 
Railroad Administration, which regulates safety. Um, so that was really irrelevant. Plus, the two railroads are pretty safe. All roads are safe, but those two in particular. So, you know, I knew this merger would be approved. Now, this merger is is reintroducing a big sector of rail-to-rail competition because a big aim will be to t- take eliminate some middlemen in there in the grain business, for example, and to really make a you know big effort to do single line service linking, as you said, Canada to Mexico, but particularly say the auto cycle from Ontario into Michigan and Ohio all the way down into Monterey. That's a big chunk of the Union Pacific business right there. And so this rail to rail competition, which is absolutely what the STB wants to see, uh, is a big part of that. But as to say, this competitive strike, if you will, by the CPKC has seemingly unleashed a, uh, 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 you know, a big boom in cooperation between other railroads as a response. So you have both more competition between rails and a much greater level of professed cooperation. You know, the, we'll see how it works. I have actually confidence. But I'm talking about uh, the Canadian National CP's big rival in Canada connecting to the Union Pacific, which is the one being potentially you know cut out of some business north south and, com- and connecting to the Ferromex at Eagle Pass so t- combining a three railroad effort versus a single line it'll be a really interesting experiment to see if given the current states of 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 technology that whether a three railroad service can compete with a one railroad service uh BNSF and JB Hunt are also moving to Eagle Pass there's a whole bunch of things C- CSX has moved into Meridian Mississippi Since that April announcement, there's been, you know, a press release every two weeks of these railroads, all the other railroads in response, combining some new piece of business in, uh, you know, uh, in the Maritimes in Canada, you know, uh, with Norfolk Southern, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's really actually exciting. It's seemingly like, you know, there was a dam of entrepreneurialism held back. And then when this merger happened, it broke the dam and everybody's out there trying to grow. and grow off their line, by which I mean whether you, you use a transload or a trucking partner or something. You know, how do I grow in this region, even if my line goes near there, not just to there? So there's, it's really exciting, and I would say this merger is really what stimulated it. And it's interesting that uh, you know, a cynic would say, yeah, it took a threat to get these guys to do anything. Whatever the case is, uh, I would think the next several years are going to be pretty exciting because of that. I agree. And service, as you mentioned a little while ago, has been a concern. And pre-COVID, the the biggest class one railroad complaint from shippers was service. Um, And it only seemed to get worse during COVID because of layoffs. So obviously labor is vital to service. And we've heard reports this year that class one railroads have gotten back to full staff in 2023. So that being said, in your opinion, has their level of service increased as well? If not, how do we get there and, and can we get there? So one of the big issues is the railroads in in the uh, known slowdown, actually stoppage of the economy briefly in March 2020, went to their old traditional um, playbook, which is to furlough workers. The railroads were able to reduce costs really quickly, uh, and that always surprises the investment community because we think of them as having high fixed costs, but they have a much higher percentage of variable costs. Historically, when railroads did this, something like three quarters or more of the workers came back when called back. This time the railroads were finding that when the economy turned back around and everybody was buying Pelotons and whatnot, because, you know, and, and Amazon packages and whatnot, you know, being a big uh, uh, railroad customer, uh, as is UPS carrying those packages, all those things, 
the crews came back at a rate of below one third, you know, a quarter to a third. So that gap was, you know, a shock. The old playbook didn't work anymore. And so they had crew shortages. And in a network business, if you have crew shortages in one part of Georgia that affects Atlanta, that's going to back trains up essentially all the way to L.A. and back into Savannah. I mean, you have these issues spiral in a, in a network and networks run really well when they run well. And when one part of it starts to fail, it could take, you know, it, like a drowning person taking their their, uh, uh, you know, rescuer down with them. Um, and so Marty Overman and the SCB gave them a lot of grief about that. But they had done what they had historically always done, and it had always worked, and it didn't this time. One reason was because was that the gap between the good pay and benefits from railroads had narrowed significantly to other things. We know that there's been inflation, and you know there was job shortages everywhere in the pandemic and in the recovery period. Uh, only the railroads, maybe you could say the steamship lines had government hearings because they have an SDB that looks at them. There was no hearing in Washington for why there weren't enough warehouse workers, right? The other parts managed to escape the spotlight. In addition, warehouse workers used to be paid, I'm making these numbers up here, 60% of a union railroad job. Uh, Now it was 80% because the railroad workers hadn't gotten a raise since 2019. And that's because of the contract negotiations. You know, the contracts run in perpetuity. So they were negotiating the, the wage increases over this period. But, and then they got them in back pay. But in this time, they were they were getting paid a certain amount, and it was no longer high enough to take up for a newcomer to the industry who would, you know, miss his kids' football games and things like that. So what I'm getting at is the rail job became a lot less attractive, at least initially, starting out when you're a low person on the totem pole. Um, when the railroads finally got their, you know, uh, and, and the unions negotiated a hefty wage increase. That restored that pay premium. That came at the same time that the railroads were also graduating a lot of uh, of crew people, train and engine people, having to put them through classes and stuff. It takes nine months once you hire somebody to get them out in the field, and it probably takes another year or two before they're fully effective. Uh, so we're going through that period now. They have enough in the field, and we're you know getting them experienced up, if you will. Uh, rail services clearly a lot better than the low point, which would have been the end of 21 into 22. Uh, it's not where it needs to be. And it's sort of like, um, you know, ideally a dog chasing a car. It almost never will be where it needs to be because the minute you get to a certain level, the demands from a shipper will get higher. I mean, you know, it's just everybody now is trying to squeeze costs out of their supply chain. And, you know, railroads realize that they're chasing a moving target. They've got to get closer to that moving target. The statistics suggest that they are. The statistics are not great nor uniform. It's very difficult to actually, from the outside perspective, compare one class one to another. Uh, the shippers know. They know. Uh, and, you know, I would say in general, they are would give railroads, you know, passing grades for having gotten better. Uh, they're not where they need to be, and everybody is aware of that. But, they're, you know, the trend is in the right direction after a long, you know, dark period. Yeah. And speaking of labor, the potential railroad labor strike earlier this year was averted. And can you take our listeners and viewers through the reasons for the proposed strike and how those concerns were resolved? There was never really going to be a strike. That was all hoo-ha. And I wrote that from the beginning. The Railway Labor Act of 19, I think, 26, 26, 27, was designed with a bunch of uh, uh, tripwires to slow the process down so that you never got, you know, that it was very difficult to get to the breakup point. And in 1926, all people moved by train, right? Any distances, as well as all freight, 
uh, you know, and the highway system hadn't been built. And so the effect of the economy would have been devastating then. It's still big enough to be devastating now. And you saw a lot of publicity. The railroads had three elements where they moved from the uh, business page to the front page. And that's never a good place to be uh, in this case. Uh, and, and the first was this supply chain crisis, which was labor driven. Then you had the labor contract issue, which I'll talk about. And the third was the safety issue. So getting to the labor, there was no real, they were never going to strike. I mean, if they did, it would have lasted 20 minutes. Uh, Labor was pushing for labor in the form of all 12 big unions and all four big U.S. carriers negotiating in Washington. We're negotiating a contract that runs in perpetuity, right? So it never expires. That's why they could still work under the old wages, but they didn't get an increase. This was all about money. That always is. They were negotiating compensation, which could take the form of salary, but also benefits and health care issues and whatnot. Interestingly, they've never negotiated ever for paid sick leave. That only came out really after the negotiations and became a a big cause celebra. Um, It was interpreted that the, the, the labor knew they were in a really good position. There were labor shortages everywhere at McDonald's, right? Everybody had a shortage of labor. They took full advantage of their economic position of, of you know, what was going on around the country in terms of other industries going through this. And we know later they had dock workers, big three auto workers, UPS. They knew they were in position that they had the best cards in this poker game. And they took advantage of that. They did a big social media campaign because getting the public and the press on their side meant that Congress would be on their side of Congress under that Railway Labor Act, is the ultimate arbiter of their salaries. They came up with a presidentially appointed emergency board, they call it the PEB, which puts recommendations and kind of splits the difference between the the labor ask and the railroad ask. Uh, When that report came out, the story was over. You had to play the last cards, and labor played it out with the threat of a strike knowing that every day they held out, another dollar would come their way. They played it perfectly. The conditions have never been in the last 50 years as pro-labor as they were coming in. You had a Democratic White House. You had labor shortages everywhere. You had labor shortages causing railroad service issues. It was the perfect time. Railroads signed a very hefty wage increase, which um, two thoughts about that. Uh, One, that was good because it restored that gap that I've talked about before. And two, in retrospect, looking at the wage increases that came to UPS, the big three, et cetera, the railroads did okay. It was shocking at the time. Now, the perception, though, because of the public, you know, the using uh, public media, using, you know, uh, t- tweets and whatnot, was that railroad, that the workers were going to walk off. It's still called, uh, you know, major news publications still refer to railway workers as almost striking because of precision scheduled railroading and because of the Wall Street focus on driving costs down. And they're just, you know, it was never that was never the case. This was the regularly scheduled every three years. It was delayed a year because of COVID. But every three years, the, the unions get together. You know, they have these meetings in Washington. And during that time of negotiations, there are no increases. And then they get back pay to compensate for that. And this has been going on for the 30 plus years I've been doing this. So it's really, um, you know, the perception that they almost walked off is not true. And the fact that the perception that there was almost a strike is also not true. Once the PEB announced it, we knew that's what it was going to be. Had they walked off on strike, um, the Congress would have intervened and, and taken the PEB, you know, not the, the administration, Congress, uh, and, and said, that's your contract. And that's essentially what, what was going to happen. And so they just signed it. You know, everybody knew. It was like um, 
if you know you hit the grand slam in the eighth inning, you still have to play the ninth inning. And so the very end, but the press made it seem so. And shippers, especially shippers who had things, I went down to a big conference, annual conference in Long Beach called the Ariana Intermodal Expo, the Intermodal Association of North America. And there I was shocked in that September a year ago how everybody was worried about the strike. And then it occurred to me, well, they might have refrigerated goods on a container that you know that's going from LA to Chicago, but now it's in Arizona on the way. And there's a strike for a day and their goods fail, you know. I mean, I understand that if you know on the local level, but there was it was never as close as the papers made it seem. Well, it I, was just a an excellent game of cards played by by labor, uh, and and a big win by labor. But then on retrospect, the win was really what everybody is getting these days now. You know, there was a big true up uh, in an inflationary time. And I appreciate your explanation of Congress being involved because I didn't understand that that was normal, that that was a part of the process. Since 1926. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So thank you for explaining that. So often they get signed before. Everybody knows that's going to happen. So sometimes they actually reach an agreement before. In this case, there was no reason for labor to reach an agreement. You know, every day they waited, they got another dollar. So why would, you know, and, and they should, would continue to pound the press and, and the Internet with, you know, with horror stories. It was all designed to increase their leverage. And it, I would have done the same thing. Now, is this type of labor dispute unique to railroading, or do we see it in other transportation industries like trucking? Uh, no. First of all, the trucking is, is, you know, there is less of truckload carriers than the UPS are unionized, but the vast majority of trucking is non-union. Uh, so we don't see it at all. I don't know about airlines. I think it's similar maybe to airlines, but I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on that. You know, it's specifically designed. The railroads, you know, have some specific rules that, that make them different. For example, the STB looking at mergers as opposed to the Department of Justice. Uh, they also, you know, so some things people have argued are too lenient for railroads. This is a, an example that, with those historical precedents that means railroads, labor negotiations, they have cooling off periods and arbitrations and all these things designed to not let it get to a flashpoint. And in the very end, even as it's getting to that flashpoint, the, this PEB report, which is essentially a mashup of the two sides, Right. It, you know, we'll solve the issue. And Congress, not being experts on rail labor, will say, well, heck, we have a report. That's what we're going to use. And they'll oppose that. And uh, as far as I know, they're the only industry. But, uh, you know, I, I, I can't say that for sure. Well, and you mentioned short line railroads a little bit earlier. So I want to touch yes. on them for a moment. So they play a major role uh, in providing service as well. And not everyone knows what a short line railroad is. So can you take a moment to explain to our listeners and viewers what a short line railroad is and the services they provide? It's short. <laughs> uh, there are 600 in the U.S. short line and regional railroads. And, you know, there are all sorts of definitions. Just understand they're not the big ones. I mean, really, you know, some of them can, uh, regionals can be quite large, although a lot of the regionals have been repurchased and reassembled into the class ones, such as the Pan Am, Montana Rail Link, um, Florida's Coast, are, you know, have gone. But, but you know, mo many of them could be two miles. They could be 250 miles, like the Indiana uh, Northern, uh, the I'm sorry, the Iowa Northern that just got purchased by CN. But there are 600 of them. Roughly half are owned by um, financial concerns that own a bunch of them. The, one of the largest infrastructure funds, Brookfield, owns the former Genesee in Wyoming, roughly 110 railroads. So it makes sense to have a bunch because some of these short lines are often very specific. They run to a grain elevator. I mean, so it's you know you're very leveraged to a thing. If you have 100 of them, you also have auto company. You know, 
you're allowed, you know, you once again, like, a, like the railroad industry writ large, you have hedged your interest in the entire economy rather than a specific thing. They are tremendously popular among shippers, uh, among regulators to Congress because they're really good service. The ideal model is they're local, they're entrepreneurial, they'll hustle for a buck. Uh, they'll switch your company. You know, the class one railroads would say, we will do it five days a week. And during the bad days of labor shortages, they're probably doing it two or three. Uh, short lines will say, we'll do seven plus, which means every day, plus you can call me. Uh, they also theoretically, um, you know, part of the, the value proposition is, the, you know, they drive around town and they see a lumber yard that had been served by railroads up into the 50s. And when the highway was built, they stopped and they'll go in and say, hey, why don't you try using some boxcar business or, you know, so they are. They really serve as the retail arm of the of the rail network. Uh, there aren't very many. I don't think there are any in Mexico. There are a bunch, there are few in Canada. It's more a U.S. issue, but they really provide great service and they act as sort of a shock absorber, buffer between. You know, they pick up business and then ideally they also can pre-block it, and so they give the big railroad, uh, you know, a set of cars destined for you know one or two destinations, so they can do what they do best, which is run long haul. The railroads don't really fail to, uh, in their service needs in between major points. You know, on the on the you know in the long haul on their network, they do really well. It's you know the hub and spoke pieces and the handlings where they tend to you know where, where you know the old line is if you're ninety percent on time, that's really good. Then you hand up to somebody that's ninety percent on time. Now you're eighty one. You add another guy, you're seventy two. You know the railroads between LA Chicago, they're great. It's, you know, if the short line can then around Chicago, distribute it to Evanston and whatever. I'm making these cities and names up. But they are really popular because they're really good. They're also really popular amongst the financial community, the private financial community, infrastructure funds and private equity funds, because they're also very stable. So if you had a short line that was for sale, it would be like Black Friday in the old days before the Internet. You know, everybody would be able to line of bankers would all be bouncing at each other trying to get in the door and punching each other with briefcases and stuff. <laughs> well, and that leads me to my next question, actually, was when I first started in the industry many moons ago, uh, class ones were selling off their uh, corridors or smaller corridors to people that were either running a short line or considering creating a short line. But over the last year or so, it appears they've been wanting them back or, or partnering with them in some cases. So what is their logic behind wanting to partner with or purchasing back the short lines? Those are two different things, partner and purchase back. I did mention that, right, the, the effort now, the, the pendulum went from creating shorelines because you had low density track um, and you had higher costs and you couldn't really have the sales effort to talk to Joe's Lumberyard, right, because your sales effort was focused on Ford Motor, you know, and companies like that. Whereas the local guy, non-union often or different, you know, you, the same guy who could switch it could also run it over the road. It wasn't different work rules were, were, were made, you know, were, were modified for short local use and uh and so that was part of the whole thing you could come in at a lower cost base and a more local you know hands-on touching experience uh and then bring that business to the class one railroad um, recently you've seen two things that are sort of contradictory um cn being a great example has been buying lots of short lines uh some of these when the leases come up some are leased the companies are taking them back bnsf bought back in the montana rail link which is not a short line. It was a thousand miles long or so. But, you know, there's, um, I mean, it was a short line by our definitional purposes. Uh, so the reason the class ones are doing it is one, the sense of control. Two, 
everybody's trying to grow off their system, right? And if you, when CSX bought Pan Am, that brought them into Maine and its opportunities there in paper packaging and other things. Also to St. John uh, Port. So as as uh, Jim Foote, who was then the CEO of CSX said, you know, if you get a chance to get water access, you don't know how the supply chains may change with China decoupling and more things you know, if you have access to an eastern port, you you know you should take it if you have that opportunity. Uh, so, so you, there is definitely a move to buy back or to buy to extend their reach through short line acquisitions. At the same time that CN has made this proposal for the Iowa Northern and has uh, bought back others in the past, they sold two or three years ago uh, a bunch of short lines in Wisconsin to Watco, which is the second largest holding company uh, for short lines. So there's no hard and fast rule. Uh, and in addition to buying them where they see opportunities, uh, the, the, the class ones are partnering better, are really taking a greater effort to integrate their marketing efforts with short lines because of their ability to touch customers in that first and last mile. The, one of the biggest issues that the STB talks about a lot, that customers talk a lot about, about is um, first and last mile and how big railroads don't do that well. Well, short lines do. So in many ways, that, that short line is coming to the rescue. They can really, you know, switch better, create economic opportunities for all, you know, and be a win-win-win. And so so you see at the same time CN has made this uh, uh, deal with to buy another short line. They also sent the largest contingent to the big short line convention conference in New Orleans this past spring, uh, held their first short line meeting where all of their short lines came in and met with the very top management. Uh, they had suspended that several years ago, and they brought that back. So CN is both in the market for short lines should they come up, and there aren't that many that come up. As I said, you know, the financial industry has come in in a wave over the last seven years and bought a bunch. But they're interested in buying them if they're available, but they're also interested in working closer with the ones that they're not buying. Um, it, you know, so so those things seem contradictory. You know, they're, they are only in the words. They really aren't. CN is a great example of doing both at the same time. Well, and let's take a moment and switch to safety. Uh, the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, February 3rd of this year, raised a lot of questions uh, in general outside of the industry and within the industry within regulatory bodies and included calls for change. So can you take a moment to give us your thoughts on the overall reactions to the incident itself as well as responses and proposed changes? So the railroads had three big body blows, and I said you almost never want to go from the business page to the front page. The first was they were inept. They didn't have enough crews. They were part of the reason why there were 150 ships lined up outside of LA Long Beach during the supply chain crisis. They were cited by people who don't even use rails for reasons for why their company earnings were bad. Supply chain issues, didn't have enough parts. Uh, then they were greedy, right? They were not paying their workers. Workers were going to strike, you know, because they were so bad. Uh, not true, right? Uh, then the third issue was East Palestine in February. Of this year. So they were inept, greedy, and now dangerous. The truth is they're not dangerous. They are much better and much safer than alternative modes of transportation, primarily that one being the highway. Um, they, however, you know, like a small plane crash and a large plane crash, and I don't want to make this sort of analogy, you know, when a railroad does have a derailment, it tends to be 100 car. you know, it's much bigger. During the time we were discussing the East Palestine incident, uh, there were two um, hazardous material truck crashes with fatalities on I-95, the big road, my, my neck of the woods, uh, one of which took down a bridge in Philadelphia, right? So that was discussed for a week. There were no hearings. 
uh, everybody jumped on this. Churchill said, never let a good crisis go unused. So at labor and communities, everybody jumped on this and said, you know, how can the railroads be allowed to carry these materials? Well, the answer is their partner in this threw them under the bus. They're not allowed to carry these materials. They are compelled to carry these materials by the government, which says, you know, and, and Norfolk Southern has often led efforts to get out from carrying these materials in the past. Uh, because they said it's such a big risk, even though we're well paid for it. it's And, and this risk will cost them a billion dollars uh, when all is said and done now. They may get some back from insurance. I don't know what that we won't know the net, but, you know, it's been a reputational hit. It wasn't their car that failed, right? All tank cars are owned by financial institutions. They were carrying that product to a place that had jobs, right? They, this is, they weren't just running around with dangerous materials like a child running around with a knife in the kitchen, you know? They were do, doing their job, and this happened. Railroad safety has improved, you know, every year since deregulation in 1940 and 1980, and and, and even more so in the in this century as capital expenditures have poured in and the tracks are better. These things happen. The government should have said, "We need to find out why this happened and try to eliminate this this particular thing happening again." Um, but but the government should have said, "The reason it's on that is we make them do it." Right. The government said, said, oh, my God, I am shocked to find there's gambling at this casino, to quote Casablanca. And it basically allowed these hearings to go on. I also want to point out that it's been called Chernobyl, two and a tragedy and a disaster. And I think to be called a disaster, you have to have at least one Band-Aid applied. There were no injuries right now to so that town has suffered. But I think a billion dollars will help their pain a bit. Um, and. You know, there were 13 Norfolk Southern employees from that town. This is a town they've been working in for in their antecedent railroads for 150 years. Um, nobody wants this to happen. Railroads do not have any incentive to cut back on safety. If the most important thing they need to do to recapture market share is be consistent, the first thing that you need to do is stay on the tracks. In addition, had this not been a hazardous material, it was their main line and would have required you know expensive emergency repair forgetting the hazardous material aspect. There's every incentive for railroads to to be safe. There's no incentive to cut back. And in addition, the capital expenditures on the network have gone up, you know, as overall CapEx has gone up and down, the network with the core has remained steady and, and extremely strong. They spend 18 cents of every revenue dollar on capital expenditures. So that's my saying about that. Now, are there things they can do better? Absolutely. And should they learn from this incident? Yes, the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board that does air, you know, all accident stuff, including rail, said this accident could have been avoided. What they meant is in studying an accident, every accident, you know, we should learn how not to make this mistake again, right? What the, they came off sounding like Norfolk Southern did something wrong. They had in the preliminary report completely cleared their action and their crews and their network. This was a, a a bearing failure inside, you know, un, not visible until it caught fire. Uh, the the hot box detectors that measure this, you know, catch the speed, the, the, sorry, the temperature of these things, completely voluntary, not government regulated. The railroads put them in, uh, and now maybe they should put them closer together. Maybe that's something, you know, more of them. But they, the railroads did this themselves. Why? Because they don't want to have a, you know, a, a, a derailment, whether it's certainly not a hazardous material derailment. But uh, but, you know, uh, any kind. So it was a major blow to the reputation of the rail industry. The, the solutions proposed by Congress. And I think there's a special place in uh, in hell for the, the 
Senate uh, senators from Ohio who represent both parties at extreme, but got together and basically, you know, use this as a camera moment for, for both of them. Talking about Brown and Vance, and they just they talked about crew size. The average crew size out there is two men. There were three on that locomotive, and it had nothing to do with this, right? A hot box to check a bearing failed. They talked about train length again. Could have been three thousand cars. That bearing failed. Uh, they talked about profits over people. No, they spent plenty of you know. So the rail industry, cooler heads, so to speak, have seemingly prevailed. To, to to stop with some of the solutions so they can say we're doing something. They, they've stepped back and I think are trying to work on things that might actually have benefits. NS has done, spent a lot of money aside from the money he spent in East Palestine on bringing in top safety experts from the nuclear Navy, which has never had an incident, you know. So, you know, everybody realizes you can do better. And this was a wake-up call. What the railroads didn't understand at first and were slow to react to is, this was a really bad wake up call because they, you know, they were trying to wake up people who had who should have been sleeping. Uh, bad analogy. But, you know, the overreaction to this could have been a real problem for the railroads. And therefore, for those jobs that were being, you know, that vinyl chloride was going to a company, you know, to make a product, a very bad product, for, you know, for consumers, you know, uh, and you certainly don't want these goods on the highway. I mean, to some extent, they always have to be, but you want to minimize that. Because even if you're the safest truck driver, the guy in front of you might not be. They crash, you know, their accident rate's a lot more. So if anybody just looked at the safety record of the railroads, which started at my elbow up here in, in 2000 and going down towards my feet, would have said, oh, the railroads are safe. Government should have said that, too, instead of saying, you know, uh, oh, it's your fault. You know, not mine, yours. Sorry, I get a little worked up about that. <laughs> Not at all. No, that was that was an excellent uh, explanation of all that and, and things that people probably never heard before. So thank you. And railroad budgets have been staggering uh, over the last few years with the investment of capital, as you talked about, yeah. each year for growth. And 2023 was no exception. Do you feel that right. the trend for investment and growth will continue? And what, what did they primarily focus on this year? So the, the the spending on the network, which we call maintenance of way expenditure, um, that is going to that's untouchable, you know. And and even during all the stuff that you know that so that's going to be that's thirteen cents, let's say, on the revenue dollar. Whether you go from fifteen cents to twenty cents, that depends on your view of growth opportunities. And several of the railroads, starting with Norfolk Southern before this incident, and the two Canadian railroads have have announced pretty big capital expenditure increases to add capacity because they see growth. So the, the industry is, is pivoting to growth from a focus on cost and the margin, which we call the operating ratio, to saying, you know, to to trying to grow both natural share that they lost in pay, in the carload sector and to share that they could actually take back or take away from trucks, getting more wallet share, things like domestic inter containerized intermodal. And so that all requires money. Uh, BNSF is building a $1.5 billion um, hub in Barstow, California, that's going to shuttle containers right out of the port of LA, which is in Long Beach, which were congested, and then remix them there in the trains heading in directions. As an example, um, you know, the, the Canadians are double tracking, adding sidings so they can put more capacity on. Uh, the biggest thing that has not been spent on local recently has been locomotives. I think the railroads are waiting for regulations and for, you know, what new source of power will be the winner in the end. You know, um, but but, you know, the railroads are, are, are ramping up their CapEx, um, as we call it, capital expenditures in the growth sector. Again, the 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 maintenance away, that's it. That stays. And then the question is here. 
what do you see? And without locomotives, it still looks lighter than pe previous peaks because they're expect $2 million per. Uh, so they're waiting on that. But the rest of it they're spending on technology and, and track capacity are the two big and, and terminals. Those are the three things. Now, the investment community is skeptical, right? The railroads have actually shrunk since 2008. Now, coal is going away, and that's nothing to do. That's not their fault. That's just the way of the world. And that's a big hit. But they have lost share partially because their service got worse for a while, right? Um, and they've lost share opportunity because why would you try it with this level of service? They're now trying to, to repitch that battle. And typically, when volumes of increased service has gotten worse, you, you know, you you're putting more into a into a you know an unstretchable tube, let's say, you know, uh, and the railroads are trying to add stretching to that. They're trying to add resiliency and and buffer stock and additional uh, 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 capacity. They want they'd rather be a little bit over capacity. Whereas in the past, the strategy, and this is true in business in general, was to try to exactly match the capacity you offer with the demand. Then you're running really efficiently, right? That's the best. Except that, you know, that's what happens when the sun shines. What if it rains? You know, what if your shippers don't know how much they're going to produce because they don't know how much the consumer is going to buy, right? So you, when you put all these things together, the railroad's inability, and I think everybody's inability in the short term to match that, leads to problems in a network business. And, and so the railroads, I think, have learned the lesson of we need to have extra capacity so that when things turn up, like as they did most dramatically when nobody was buying anything in, in 2020 and then everybody bought everything in 2020. Um, so the Wall Street is skeptical. And so the roads need to continually prove this. There are other uses of that cash they generate, right? You could buy back stock. You could raise the dividends. The best me method is to do all three in a balanced me measure. And right now we're in this this you know debate between the owners of these companies who are the the big funds in wall street remember they that's who that's they own these guys they about how to best use the cash and managers are saying we need to plan through a cycle we need to spend if we spend we think we can grow these huge amounts in new products like battery production and the minerals required for that some of these new auto plants some of the nearshoring or reshoring opportunities the huge growth in mexico and and they also say, if we don't spend this, we know we won't grow. We don't have the capacity. That's the debate. I'm firmly on their side in this. Um, you will hear a lot of talk about the short-term uh, focus of Wall Street. That is really another falsehood. There is some, you know, the owners of a company, a publicly traded company, let's say a big railroad, range from day traders who may own it for today to people who own it for 10 years. But the shorter end of the spectrum, which is, you know, not as useful to the general good. Uh, yeah, they be, it's fine. They offer liquidity in the market, but I mean, in terms of trying to make a long-term plan, they're just the loudest. They're not the most. So um, I think we also have new leadership at just at every railroad. You know, new in the last couple of years, aggressive, young, tech-savvy, most of whom have direct marketing experience uh, as the chief marketing officer, like uh, Alan Shaw at Norfolk Southern, or having running a unit like Katie Farmer, who ran Intermodal, the most market competitive you know a unit at bnsf and she's down the ceo um they're the best in the world at intermodal and having somebody who runs it they really understand you know how to create a product that people are going to buy right as opposed to here's my product you want it or not which is typically what an operating guy would do so i'm actually excited about the future it's not without risk investment is a risk right nobody you don't invest to get a short return 
you're investing in it siding so you can run longer trades so you can make more money by moving more goods. That's a risk. Those goods might not come. The world could end. You know, the, the industry you're trying to serve may go, may be taken over by, I, I'm making all these things up, but you get it. It's a risk. I think it's worth the risk. I think they could generate tremendous returns on that investment. And that's really what the game is about. Absolutely. And who would you say are winners and losers in 2023? Uh, I, that's a hard thing for me to get to. I'm not sure I really want to go. I'll tell you this. Um, nobody, this is the network. And nobody can really win with, and somebody lose. If somebody loses, uh, they take the network down. You know, in the past, a way to invest in the industry when there really were different gaps in capability and operating ratio and, you know, efficiency was actually to buy the least efficient, right? The, the you know, the worst run to be very simplistic because, you know, they would get better. First of all, the, the playbook is out there. And second, if they didn't do it, somebody would do it for them. And uh, so you actually wanted to buy the outlier and watch it come back to the mean. This industry moves as a group, you know, the most aggressive right now. I mean, all I can't think, you know, uh, all of them have really exciting things going on. Uh, Norfolk Southern has been a leader in what I call the great experiment, which is to try to refocus investors away from the short-term operating ratio focus to a through a cycle investment growth focus. But the Canadians followed up, you know, a couple of months after that with their investor day saying very similar things. I mean, I think they all, most of them already have it, believe it in their psyche. I'm talking about who's communicating it. So I would put those three maybe at the top. But you can argue right now that the best run railroad in terms of service providing is CSX. So, you know, um, uh, CP Casey has this huge new growth opportunity in Mexico. I mean, there's, there's like a, a reason to pick any one of them as a winner. Uh, BNSF and J.B. Hunter entering into a partnership that's the closest I can ever imagine that they're looking with this new product called Quantum, which is a domestic intermodal product. They think they see 7 to 11 million possible loads in their region you know, coming out of this, you know, they're Fort Worth based, so they're not going to be far from you. Uh, and they actually have hunt people in the BNSF offices to create this domestic product. Now, 7 to 11 million loads, for those of you out there in the domestic marketplace today, there's about 8.5 million loads. So we're talking about a big number just in the West that they're seeing, right? So um, that's the kind of thing that really excites me. I, I don't, and again, if any one of those railroads absolutely spiral down, Everybody would, you know, this this is truly one of the furious because they're interlinked, right? Meeting in Chicago, New Orleans, St. Louis, Memphis, you know, uh, El Paso, et cetera, et cetera. All these things, Laredo, um, this network will rise. Were there any surprises that uh, happened for you in this year? Like as far as maybe commodities that rose uh, more in shipments than you thought maybe they would or anything that got your attention this year? In this past year? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing was, you know, it's not a one-to-one. -one. I thought volumes would come back. There's two sets of, two, two set, different sets of market share opportunities for railroads. They lost share in natural rail business, by which I mean, let's just use paper as an example. Paper is a complicated business because it's many-to-many. -many. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to unit trains, which is a train that's only one product, you know, like, like a unit train of double-stack containers from LA to Chicago. Uh, it, you know, is very simple in that regard compared to paper, but paper, uh, you know, paper facilities were built to fit a boxcar. They were built to go on rail. Rail is cheaper, right? When, it, when rail works, it's cheaper. It's greener. You know, uh, everybody wants to use rail. When shippers were really angry with rail, 
uh, you know, compare this to other industries. They were really angry because they couldn't use it. I'm mad at you because I can't use your product, right? So you had an area where if railroads would carry two thirds of the paper and container board, brown paper, you know, Amazon box paper and all that stuff, they carried about two thirds of that uh, in box cars. During the worst days of the um, labor shortages and whatnot, that probably dropped to about a third. So that's natural share recovery, right? You know, they, in other words, people want to give this to you. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to do a trial run. You know, your factory is set up for a boxcar. And and so um, that I thought that would have come back on a one-to-one basis, essentially, as you put crews in the field and resolve the labor shortage. And it has not. And part of the answer is they had to sign annual contracts. I mean, I was overly optimistic about the recovery. You know, I would have said if GDP was, you know, the economy is growing at two, railroads should grow their carload business at three. Because one point was this business that they lost because they were really messing up. Uh, that uh, that has not happened yet. And, um, uh, you know, it's happening, but slowly. So that came on slower. The next set of shares are what we're talking about when I talked about quantum and seven to 11 million. You know, that's the next group is areas where people who are generally sympathetic to the rail story, but don't quite trust them. Trust is taking a while to build out. And so you have people who use intermodal in certain lanes, but they would like to use more solves their carbon issues, right? It's 15 to 25% cheaper. Right now they think I'd have to have all those savings would be eaten up in higher inventory costs because they're not reliable. I think they're more reliable than people think. It's going to take a while to, to close that gap, a little longer than I thought. Well, and believe it or not, we're nearing the end of our episode already, but I want to touch on rail trends. So your conference took place in November. Do you want to tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about rail trends and what it's all about? So there are a lot of conferences in the rail business. Uh, there are shipper conferences. We talked about SWAR, Southwest Association. I told you about Intermodal Expo. Uh, I speak at about 25 of them a year. Uh, I will be at Mars, uh, Midwest Association of Rail Shippers. I love to call it Mars uh, because it's when you go to the greater Chicago in January, it feels like you're on Mars. Um, so, you know, I, I do this a lot. And I was thinking all of them are really good for a very specific thing. Uh, and in the Wall Street side, in the investment side, they have a conference for transportation. And they'll bring in all the chief financial officers of the railroads and they'll say, we are Union Pacific. Here's a map. Here's our last quarterly results. And here's the message we want to tell you, they, like a politician who has like a stock speech. They'll do the stock speech. I don't want the stock speech. I want to learn something. So we created Rail Trends, a conference where we tend to have, you know, the others. Every There's a no CFO rule, right? You, you can be chief operating, chief marketing. You could be a head of a particular business unit. Like we had the head of Intermodal at BNSF and the head of Intermodal at J.B. Hunt talk about quantum, which is probably the most exciting thing I think going on. We had the CEO of Kansas CPKC, as it is now, uh, talk about Mexico. We had three CEOs. We had Marty, the chief regulator. Uh, we had three of the other four STB members in the audience. I tried to bring together what do I want to know about railroads, which is everything, you know, and and what is, so what does the audience want? And the the biggest the biggest thing about our conference is a it's sold out. It's in New York. It's you know it's expensive. But, you know I don't have to pay for it. So but um, you know it's an expensive hotel room. But everybody who goes stays. At a lot of these conferences, a speaker will go do his thing and get out. Well, they all want to hear each other. And so the audience and the audience is great, right? We had three of the five STB commissioners, the regulators, in the audience the whole time. And the, the fourth, the chairman, spoke. Only one didn't come. As an example, we had the head of strategy at 
three class one railroads just come to listen. Um, so uh, that's what pleases me. It's terrific. It's in railtrends.com. It's the biggest thing I do all year. It really is the, the key thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's in New York. And, you know, the, the biggest themes out of this were, um, you know, increased guys sort of cover them, increased competition, CPKC. But because of that increased cooperation and, you know, new entrepreneurialism, I had five short line guys speak in this and many more were in the audience. I had, um, you know, uh, the JB Hunt be at a staff, as I mentioned, and other railroads talk about their new things they were doing. CN talking about their, their work with Union Pacific and Faramex to counter the, the CPKC moves. Um, those really the big themes. But there was skepticism. Um, nobody is more funny and interesting and skeptical uh, than the new CEO at CSX, Joe Henricks. I mean, you know, he he feels there's great opportunity, but he's like, I came to this conference last year and you guys were talking about growth and we haven't grown. That's a true fact. You know, that's that's the disappointment I just addressed in your last question. Uh, he was great, but he was like, we need to, you know, our standards are too low. We can't get to 2019 levels and say that's good, pre-pandemic, because the world's changed. That's not good enough. And and so a healthy skepticism, I think, is good for the industry. And so, you know, I would say, you know, uh, uh, trust, cooperation, competition and skepticism. Those were sort of the mixing themes of this conference. And most people who were there, I mean, I haven't heard anybody say it wasn't great. Uh, obviously, I'm heavily biased. But, you know, as an attendee as, and speaker, as well as, a you know, as the creator, uh, I, I thought it was great. Absolutely. And I've heard nothing but good things about it. So people, please check, please check it out. Uh, so Tony, where can people learn more about you? Where can they reach you? Uh, they could reach me um, through at railtrends.com is one area. Uh, AB, abhatchconsulting.com is my website, which is uh, not very sophisticated. I'm not, I talk a lot about technology in the railroads and we will we'll cover this maybe in the next podcast. That's a huge element of increased visibility and whatnot, but I'm a technological idiot. Uh, and uh, you can also just email me at abh18 at mindspring.com. But if you go to the website, you'll get a bio and a look at some of the things I've done and the work I do. You know, I, I work with people who care about the strategy, the finances, and the success of the rail industry. Those are primarily but not exclusively financial people, people who big professional funds that buy stock or big professional funds that buy a whole short line railroads. But that also includes suppliers, uh, short lines. Um, others, you know, that, that, can, that for whatever reason have a real interest in what the freight North American freight rail industry is going to be doing. And that's what I do. I don't deal with passenger at all, with the exception of the when they get in the way of my freight train, or when I, as a major consumer of it here in the Northeast Corridor, I wouldn't go to Boston or, or to Washington and not get on a train. I would never do any other mode. So it's all about freight for me. Um, you know, if you if you could, if you want to come by container. We can talk about that. <laughs> Very good. And I thank you again, Tony, for joining us on the American Railroading Podcast for the 2023 year in review. It's been a pleasure. As I said, you're one of my favorite speakers. I really enjoyed having you today. And would you like to join us again on another episode? Uh, absolutely. We could try, you know, and hopefully it won't be as difficult as this one was to get scheduled. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. I know that darn flu is going around, but I'm glad to see that you're feeling much, much better. So thank you again, Tony. So happy new year, uh, everybody out there and, uh, go blue. Uh, maybe another way they can find me is at the victory parade at the beginning of November next year in Los Angeles. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Best $700 million I ever spent, right? Somebody spent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. Bye-bye. 
And folks, I want to take a moment to thank none other than my producer, John, and VV Marketing team for the uh, season one has been truly incredible. It's it's achieved way more than I could have dreamed about. You know, I said we spent two years planning the podcast and getting it launched, but we couldn't have done it without my friend John's help here. So, John, uh, anything you want to share with our audience before we wrap up season one? I just thank you guys for listening and keep listening. And Don, you just keep doing what you're doing and it's going to be great. Well, thank you. And like I said, I couldn't do it without you, my friend. So thank you for all your hard work and efforts over season one. I also want to take a moment to recognize our anchor sponsor, which is the Revolution Rail Group. Again, we are a consulting and brokering firm in the rail car industry. So if you're needing merger and acquisition consulting, uh, process flow analysis, um, even uh, short-term managerial assistance, we can help you there. And then uh, on, the con- on the brokering side, if you're looking to buy, sell, lease, or sublease rail cars, uh, any rail car, box cars, hopper cars, tank cars, we can help you with that. Again, you can reach us at 844-455-3434 or info at therevolutionrailgroup.com. You can also check out our full suite of services at therevolutionrailgroup.com. And our next episode will be next year, which is really only a few weeks away at this point. Um, but it's been an incredible first year. We're looking to head forward to having you on board um, for 2024. And again, Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. Enjoy your time with friends and family. Love you all. God bless. Make it a great day. And we'll see you next year. Thanks for joining us on the American Railroading Podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on a future episode or want to support or sponsor the show, please visit our website at AmericanRailroading.net. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on the American Railroading Podcast.